Welcome to r slash, a podcast where I read the best posts from across Reddit. Today's subreddit is r slash pro revenge. Our next Reddit post is from Unhappy Taste. I was working in a finance company last year. I have a computer programming background, and one day I make a proposal to my manager. I know that one of the manual jobs around the office can be automated using some new technology, and it'll reduce 500 man hours per week. My manager also has a technology background, and he says that it hasn't been done because it can't be done, and he acted condescendingly towards me. I was bullheaded and had something to prove. So I developed the program on my own, in my own time, on my home computer, then compiled it into a binary and gave it to him. He got permission from the IT department to run it on his computer and was utterly sure that it wouldn't work and he would get to laugh at me. But it did. Even though the software works, my idiot manager took it as an insult somehow and banned me from using it, giving some inane reason that doing it manually was much more effective, which was a bummer because it was working beautifully. Fast forward three months or so, and my manager was hard-pressed for some brownie points during appraisal, so in examples of showing initiative, he used my software without mentioning me. Some super senior manager took notice and gave him a promotion and a raise. Now, instead of being a sensible guy and coming clean to get code from me, he calls me into his office, behaves rudely, and says that I need to submit the code for that software. I asked him why. You said we won't be using it. He's like, either you submit the code or you'll be fired. I was already fed up with being treated like garbage by this douchebag, just because he was somehow jealous. So I said F off, I won't submit the code. I know enough law to know that you can't sue me, and I resign. I came to learn later through my colleagues that this is what he must have wanted so that he could take the entire credit himself without dispute. Little did he know, there was a malicious code module hidden in that executable file, which checked for a 1 or 0 on a remote GitHub repository every time it was run. If there was a 1 or there was no network, it did everything as required. But if it received a 0, that was the emergency signal. I added this little code because his behavior was very suspicious to begin with, and I didn't trust him. I was planning to remove it after its official implementation, which never happened. So I went ahead and changed that 1 to a 0 after I was fired to ensure that no one could use it without my permission. Although he couldn't get the code, he did have the executable file, and I wasn't in the company anymore. So, in his arrogance, he called a meeting with his boss, his colleagues, and my whole team to show them a demo of his awesome software that he had made. But today, the one was a zero, so as soon as he pressed enter, nothing happened. He pressed it again. Nada. Suddenly, his laptop was frozen and nothing was working anymore. It took him a while to realize something fishy was going on, and then he took out the laptop battery to switch it off. By then, all the Word, Excel, and PowerPoint files were encrypted, and the executable had erased itself out of existence. I used the same code, without the malicious module, to get a better job at another company, where I'm much more appreciated and the job is also fun. Then, the whole COVID thing happened, and now I'm cozily working from home. My previous colleagues of that sucky company keep telling me that they're being forced to go to the office. So, somehow, this was accidentally the best decision I'd ever made. That idiot boss's promotion and raise got cancelled because he couldn't produce what was promised. 
He also got reprimanded for losing a lot of important company data, which he attributed to some unknown virus, which wasn't believable because no one's allowed to put anything on those office laptops without security clearance from the IT department. He called me one night, drunk, angry, and threatening me that he knows what I did. I feigned ignorance and quoted something like, sucky things happen to sucky people and blocked his number. But I had to tell someone about this flawless victory over a moron without being implicated, so here it is. And down in the comments, Sumo Ninja clarifies why it's very important to be kind to your IT people. We sold industry-specific custom software in the mid-80s to mid-90s. I built an expiration into it. Every year at midnight on December 31st, the software stopped working. You either had to pay us or know my dog's birthday and all the license plates to all the cars I ever drove to change a date to the next year. We got paid. Our next Reddit post is from Psycho Fluffybutt. My dad told me this story a few years back. My grandfather lived in a really rural area in Georgia. This was around the late 1930s, early 1940s. My grandfather owned a farm and had a garden. He planted various vegetables. Well, the only neighbors were about a mile away. And for some reason, the neighbors would drive their Model T through the garden, tearing up the vegetables. My grandpa would have to replant the garden. The neighbors kept doing this. So here comes the revenge part. My grandfather dug holes around the garden and stuck metal poles into the holes. He covered up the holes with leaves. A few days later, the neighbors drove through again. My dad said they tore the undercarriage out and had parts strewn all over the place. He couldn't remember what happened after that, but I don't think they did that again. And just a quick reminder about U.S. history, the Great Depression happened in the early 30s. So there's a decent chance that OP's family was literally relying on those vegetables to eat. I don't know what those neighbors were thinking, but they had every bit of this justice coming. Our next Reddit post is from Detritone. This story is about my grandfather and how he outsmarted his brother after his brother exploited their mother. About 40 years ago, my great-grandparents were dying. My great-grandfather was gone, and my great-grandmother was on her way out and abusing morphine to lessen the pain. She was writing a will when she was sober, but she was rarely sober. Her estate was essentially what would be a multi-millionaire's estate adjusted for inflation. Her estate was in Ireland while my grandfather and his brother were in England. My grandfather went to the local pub to see his brother. He did this every Saturday night to keep in touch with his brother. This time, something was different. His brother wasn't there. Instead, his brother spontaneously moved to Ireland and spent time with his mother, who was heavily on morphine. The morphine was clouding her judgment, and bear in mind, she was writing a will. My grandfather's brother, we'll call him Lee from now on, went to Ireland to cozy up with his mother in hopes of getting her whole estate. My grandfather didn't know Lee was doing this and didn't think much of it. Fast forward about a year and my great-grandmother kicks the bucket. The funeral day arrives and everything goes fine until they get to the will. Great-grandmother was high on morphine when she was making the will and everything she had in the will went to Lee. Nobody else got anything in the will put two and two together, and everyone was pissed off at Lee. But the will couldn't be contested because there were people who signed in witness of the will, including her attorney. Lee becomes outcasted, but everyone gives up on trying to save their mother's things, except Granddad. Lee inherited a large plot of land in Ireland. Nothing special, except it was in rural Ireland. It couldn't support a septic tank and was worth a ton of money. 
The house in this plot was right on the edge of the land, but the septic tank was on the neighbor's land. Lee didn't know this, so he didn't buy the land next to the house. This isn't up to building code, so the house can't be sold until the septic tank is on his land. My grandfather knew this and bought the land surrounding the house. Lee fixed up the house and got a building inspector to inspect the house and check if it was up to code so he could sell the house. The inspector caught the septic tank and told Lee he couldn't sell the house unless the septic tank is on his land. Lee went to the neighbors to buy the small plot of land that had the septic tank, only to find out they sold it to my grandfather. And my grandfather was unwilling to sell the land to Lee. Lee invested easily over 300,000 pounds in the house. So the house was in great shape and was supposed to be resold. Lee can't sell the house for a profit because my grandfather owns the land the septic tank is on. Lee can't put a septic tank on his land because the land can't support a septic tank. My grandfather put Lee into a checkmate where Lee has to sell the land and everything on it to my granddad. My grandfather isn't going to buy the land for anything more than 5,000 euros. And to this day, Lee still won't sell the land to my grandfather. My grandfather didn't want the land. He just wanted to return the favor to Lee. Lee is now just scraping by on his plot of land because of his stubbornness, and he still, to this day, won't accept defeat. I love this post from Oofly. Septic tanks require maintenance. I would charge the brother a fee for maintaining his septic tank, and I would charge rent because it's on my property. Our next Reddit post is from Latina Cinderella. I used to be in what my college we call a cedar an investigation group created by students that want to produce scientific articles, in this case psychology, and were normally directed by a professor. I had just started college, didn't know how things worked, but thanks to a friend, I was able to enter one of the most exclusive cedars of our faculty. They were developing at the time five articles, and I was assigned to the newest one, a simple case review. But this story is not about me or my project. This story is about Rebecca, the friend who helped me before. Like me, Rebecca was a psychology major doing her final year of college, and she was one of the lead investigators in the Crown Project of the Cedar at the moment, a meta-analysis on conductual behavior therapy in schizophrenic patients around Latin America. This stuff was not easy. She had spent a year and a half working on it, and when I joined the group, it was already in its final stages. Then the drama began. Well, it had actually started midway through the project when the first drafts were sent to the publications office. In my college, the publications office can be your best friend or your worst enemy as an investigator, and their suggestions are basically orders. Because the article dealt with a psychiatric pathology, they said it must have the support of the college med school psychiatric department. The head of the department, who I'll call Dr. Trash, added the condition that one of his residents had to be on the project. It was kind of rude to force him to include some random guy, but in the end, she and her group accepted. Enter Julian, the human incarnation of laziness. In a team of five individuals, Rebecca, Julian, and three other psychology students, Julian barely did any job, and whatever he made had to be checked and corrected by one of the others. Sometimes, Rebecca doubted he even knew what the article was about from some of his comments. Fast forward again to the finish line of the project. It was basically done and only needed the approval of Dr. Trash. And this is where things went to hell. For those who don't know, psychiatrists and psychologists aren't always on the best terms and this hidden feud can sometimes cause troubles when we interact. 
In this case, since Rebecca learned from one of the good psychiatry residents, the problem was that Dr. Trash didn't believe psychology should exist and thought of us as glorified life coaches. You see where this is going. With the project already done, he refused to approve it unless the people who got credit as the main authors were himself, our cedar director, and Julian. And his request was reasonable to a point because department heads were always considered main investigators. The others, as in the people who actually did all the work, could only put their name as investigation assistants on the acknowledgement section. This was a total slap in the face. Even when she tried to argue that she was the one that designed the project in the first place and that Julian did the minimum, the man called her a liar and said that her basic idea had needed a lot of corrections, which was false, and that he knew Julian had written most of the paper as there was no way she could have done it. Remember, he saw us as life coaches. Julian, being the douchebag he'd been all year, didn't correct him and let the others down while he was praised. In her last peaceful attempt, Rebecca asked why they couldn't put everyone's name as the authors, and Dr. Trash said that a bunch of unknown students' names would only weaken its credibility and he refused her offer. Lastly, he said that they could accept his terms or quit the project and give him total control of the article. You may be thinking this is impossible. The man is literally stealing the work from another person. Sadly, this is how investigation works sometimes, and it's not uncommon that well-established investigators steal the work of unknown ones because it's he said, she said, and they'll most likely win. Even with evidence like emails and drafts, they can still get their way. Rebecca and her friends were devastated, but even the director of the CEDAR refused to give them his support. The important thing is that the article is published, not who takes the credit, was his reasoning. That's when Rebecca decided to go full suicide bomber. When she told her friends of her idea, warning them it would be best if they leave the project before things escalated, they decided to stay to help her. The plan was to sabotage the article by modifying the statistical analysis they had made previously. Basically, the core of it all. The conclusion you got with the new results was the same as before, but anyone who read the thing thoroughly and checked the sources would see that the data had been tampered, making it look like they had forged the results to their convenience. This was a tricky move, because they had to make the modifications in between the last revisions with enough subtlety that Dr. Trash wouldn't notice it when he corrected the other parts of the text. They were extremely lucky he never checked the statistical component, partly because that was the CEDAR director's responsibility and he had already given them the thumbs up. Finally, the article was completed and the work was sent to the publication's office. Then it was just waiting until it finally went boom. About a month after submitting the project, everyone involved was required to go to a meeting with the publication's office, including Dr. Trash. The office had seen the altered results, and that meant that they had to investigate the group for fraud. To the students and the resident, it could mean expulsion. For the director and Dr. Trash, they would be forbidden to publish again under the university's name, and in the worst case scenario, they could be fired. And that's when Dr. Trash saw he had condemned himself. Because Rebecca and the others were just assistants, it meant that most of the responsibility was on himself and the other main authors. Blaming the students would give away the fact that they were more involved in the process and admitting that he had taken away the credit and that he hadn't checked the paper properly. 
In the end, he didn't have to decide how he wanted to be hanged because the Cedar director spilled the beans in order to save his own neck. With the director's confession, Rebecca and the others could tell the truth and show the publication's office the real results and told them about the sabotage. The aftermath of this is very bittersweet. 1. The office started an investigation on Dr. Trash's articles and those he sponsored, and found that he had done this way too many times. He was fired after the news spread around, and as far as we know, he has not done any more publishing and index literature because no serious magazine will accept his submissions. 2. Because of all the drama, Rebecca's article was deemed too compromised by personal interests and was not accepted for publishing. So, that year's hard work went directly to the trash. 3. The Cedar director had to surrender his job as an investigator and the Cedar disbanded because there was no other professor available or willing to direct it. 4. Julian was put on probation by the medical faculty. 5. Rebecca and the others were banned from participating in other investigation projects or studies that weren't related to their final thesis, but no more disciplinary actions were taken against them. Wow, OP, Rebecca is like a genius or something. She managed to trap Dr. Trash in a situation where either result meant that he was totally screwed. I've read a lot of pro-revenge stories, and this one was brilliant. That was r slash pro-revenge, and if you like this podcast, then check out my Patreon where I publish extra content. Also, be sure to follow my podcast, because I put out new Reddit episodes every single day.